Sessions. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. This is the Sound on Sound podcast brought to you by the staff of Sound on Sound magazine. Hello, I'm Hugh Rob Johns, technical editor for SOS, and with me I have news editor Chris Mayswright. Hello. And editor-in-chief Paul White. Hello. Unless you've been revisiting last year's podcasts, you'll be hearing our voices for the first time in 2009. And what a year it's been so far. Christmas break was closely followed by the NAM show, and we'll be talking about that later. So that's had us off the podcast schedule for a month. But we're back on track now, and Paul has a list of what's coming up on this month's podcast. In a moment, we'll be talking to SOS Features Editor Sam Ingalls about something very exciting indeed. We'll leave you in suspense for that. And we'll also be answering your questions and suggesting some tips and tricks for the studio. But first, it's back to Chris for the news. Korg have released the MicroKorg XL, an update to the popular MicroKorg. The new model has a 16-band vocoder, can be battery-operated, and uses a simple cluster of knobs for patch selection. Find out more at korg.com. Focusrite's latest audio interface is the Liquid Sapphire 56, which has two liquid preamps built in. These give the user the sounds of the vintage preamp stages from 10 pieces of classic studio equipment. Visit focusrite.com for further details. Ableton have launched Live 8, the latest version of their live performance DAW software. Key features include a built-in looper, which intelligently creates synchronised sound-on-sound loops. There's also a vocoder for the first time, as well as multi-band dynamics with upward and downward compression and expansion, as well as numerous other effects. Live users can now crossfade on the fly from the arrangement view, and MIDI data can be entered using a step recorder. There's all this and more in Live 8, which is due to ship later this year. Head to ableton.com for more. Akai Professional have unveiled a glut of new products, including the APC40, a controller for Ableton Live. There's also the MPK25, a two-octave controller keyboard that's packed full of assignable controls. For information on both new products, visit akaipro.com. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Earlier in the month, we attended the MPG Awards ceremony in the heart of London's Leicester Square, where most of the country's hit-making talent congregated at the Café de Paris. The winner of the Joe Meek Award for Innovation in Production was Brian Eno. Here's what he had to say. There have really been two great inventions in music in the last couple of hundred years. One was the orchestra in the 18th century. And in the 20th century, the big invention was the recording studio. And the recording studio was really an entirely different way of making music. It started out, of course, as a way of presenting music. Of course, what happened very quickly was that suddenly the media became something entirely separate and it became possible to do things with recording which could not ever have been done before. And so a new music appeared, many new kinds of music appeared. And actually, that's what everybody in this room does. Now, unfortunately, this still has the same name. It's still called music, though it's as different from performed music as movies are from theatre. So I think there needs to be a new, a new name, actually. We'll still call it music for now, just, just so the musicians still think they have something to do with it. Other winners included Calvin Harris, who picked up the award for Best Remixer, and Duffy's producer Bernard Butler, who won the Producer of the Year award. He also won a Brit Award for the same category. Visit mpgawards.co.uk for more information. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that each month we answer your studio questions. You'll also know that the email address for sending your questions into is soundadvice at soundonsound.com. 
Our first reader question this month comes from Joe Spears in Kent. And he asks, how can I build my own bass traps for the least amount of money? Well, I think the first thing to say is that you should make sure that your speakers match the room and are in the optimal position before you even start thinking about the bass traps. Then play some of your commercial material, ideally something with a really busy bass line, and check to see if some notes sound unusually loud and some unusually quiet. If they do, move the speakers again until you get them as even as possible. And at that point, if they're not even enough, then you do need some bass trapping. Uh, traditionally bass trapping goes in corners because that's where the, the room modes are anchored that cause these resonances and these corners can be either vertical corners or horizontal corners where the wall meets the ceiling it depends where you have space uh, the main problem with bass trapping is that you need quite a lot of it to be effective and and a big depth of absorbent material so uh, big bundles of rock wool rolled up in the corners uh, would work but you would have to find some way of screening that off using fabric to make it cosmetically acceptable and to keep the fibres out of the air. Uh, conversely, you could use big blocks of commercial foam, which you can buy for the purpose, but again, filling all the corners with that can be quite expensive. Uh, one method that we found that works reasonably well is to buy rigid rock wool of the type used in cavity wall insulation and fix that diagonally across the corners in a thickness of either 30 or 60 millimetres. And if you hang a resilient piece of barrier mat or heavy rubber matting or even rubber back carpet behind that, that'll also improve the low frequency absorption. Hugh, what's your view on this? Yeah, if you're going to do it on the cheap, then um, the Rockwell is definitely the way to go because the foam products, although they can be quite good, are very expensive. So um, the, the hard Rockwell does seem to work pretty well and you can, you can build it into wooden frames quite cheaply, cover it with fabric. Um, dust sheets actually make make very cheap effective uh, fabric to cover it uh, any fabric will do as long as you can breathe through it or blow through it um, and probably that's your best bet mm. and if you can cover the corner from floor to ceiling or the full length of a wall and make this make the thing airtight so that the low frequencies have to force their way through the rock wall to uh, to get to the walls that way you'll absorb some of the energy before it comes back the other thing some people worry about is that if they put bass trapping in the studio, it's somehow going to diminish the amount of bass that they hear from their monitors. But this is actually not true. What it does is it evens out the response of the room. And it's very difficult to have too much bass trapping. So build as much as you can fit in, do the listening tests again, and then put in more if you need it. Of course, if your room has plasterboard walls or a plasterboard ceiling, these are going to absorb some bass energy anyway. So you'll find that the most difficult rooms to treat are the ones with very solid dense surfaces on all sides so if you have a concrete floor concrete walls and a very hard ceiling then that's the room that's going to need a lot of bass trapping sound advice next up paul joseph says do i need a dedicated headphone amp probably not really is the answer um but it is true that the quality of headphone amps varies enormously on different products um you know budget mixers um budget interfaces often have fairly weedy headphone amplifiers that aren't the best for driving the highest quality of headphones so if you're going to invest in serious headphones then it, it kind of makes sense to invest in a good headphone amp to drive them as well when you get that far but it's not essential no what do you think paul i think that's absolutely true um if you need a lot of level into into good quality studio headphones then maybe it is worth buying one for, uh, if you've got a drummer in the studio for example and they want to hear plenty of uh, drum kit in the mix one thing to think about is that if you do have a very powerful headphone amplifier, you could have your clients turning it up rather too much and damaging their hearing, so you need to keep an eye on that as well. What is it in these standalone headphone amps that makes them different to a headphone amp, say, in an audio interface? It Power to, and headroom, I'd say. Yeah, it usually comes down to the ability to provide lots of current. That, that's the usual thing where most 
headphone amplifiers fall short. They can't drive enough current to control the headphones properly. And it's especially true then if someone plugs in a pair of low impedance headphones, which needs more current to drive them. This is true. Sound advice. John from Stevenage says he's got an old record player and he wants to put some vinyl into his computer so that he can experiment by creating his own loops and grooves. So, copyright issues aside, he, what does he need to get the output from this record deck into his sequencer and make it sound right? Well, if it's a standard record deck, then the first thing you need to do is equalise the signal because what comes off a record is very heavily equalised uh, when the record's made. So, you need something called an RIAA preamplifier. To sort that out. This is a thing that's sometimes called a phono preamplifier. A phono preamplifier, yeah. And normally that's built into your hi-fi system, a standard. And you might be able to use a hi-fi system and just take the output from the tape-out sockets, connect that to your computer interface, and that'll do the job for you. Or you can buy separate standalone RIAA preamplifiers to do that for you and just give you a standard line level out. Mm. Once you've done that correction, then you can just record it like any other line level source, and away you go. One or two audio interfaces already have those built in, and indeed I think there are some relatively inexpensive ones from companies like ART, um, which have got a USB audio interface built in so that it's a one-stop solution. Just a thought then, if it's only equalisation, surely you could feed the thing directly into your door and then use a plug-in with the correct EQ curve to uh, compensate. Yes, you can, and there are some some door uh, systems that do have those curves as presets already built into the EQ options list. But it's not just EQ. The output from a, a turntable pickup is very low. It's it's almost microphone level. So you're still going to need some kind of preamplifier going on there somewhere. Really, the only way to get the right result is to buy the hardware preamp with the EQ built in. Yeah, or use a, an old hi-fi amplifier to do it for you. Sound advice. Olaf Gondelson says, My recording space is on the second floor and I have wooden floors. I find that the mics pick up a lot of noise from the floor, through the stands, even with the shock mount. I don't want to put a rug down because the space sounds nice. Is there anything I can do? This sounds like a huge question. Yeah, there's several things you can do. Um, the first thing to, to think about is that not all shock mounts are the same. Uh, some work very, very well, and some actually just don't, even if they look the same. Um, what it comes down to is the efficiency that the shock mount isolates the microphone and that's all to do with the design of the shock mount the the kind of elastics or rubbers or suspension system that it has how well that's matched to the mass of the microphone uh, and even down to the orientation of the the rubbers and suspensions in the shock mount how that relates to the diaphragm itself can all have a big effect Um, so there is a lot to shock mount design that um, often in the cheaper microphones doesn't uh, doesn't work as well as it should the other thing to think about is the microphone cable an awful lot of energy gets into the microphone itself through the cable so if you don't dress the cable nicely uh, vibrations will get into the mic that way and effectively circumvent your shock mount altogether so by dressing the cable you mean putting a loop in it and maybe taping it to the stand so that you're not hanging the mic cable down onto the floor absolutely trying to stop the vibrations from moving down that end of the cable Mm. um and then the other thing you can you can do is actually mount the stands themselves on foam or rubber or something like that to lift them off the floor and to, to try and provide a bit of mechanical isolation down at the floor level. Yes, indeed. In fact, Auralex do some little U-shaped um, foam widgets that go under the legs and they work really well for that. They do, they do. But any kind of soft foam uh, will actually work pretty well. Hmm. Um, and then lastly, um, the other thing you can do is roll off some of the bass from the microphone before it gets into the system. So if it is picking up low-frequency vibrations, you roll them off before they get into the, uh, into the mix itself. Um, steep filter 80 hertz or so is a good place to start so if you don't need those low frequencies and the mic has a low frequency switch on it that's a good place to start as well yeah absolutely because the earlier you can get rid of it in the chain the better yeah quite right this is the sound on sound podcast
We talked just now in the Q&A section about uh, how shock mounts work and, and how to make them work better. One of the leading specialists in shock mount design is a company called Ryko, and uh, our very own Chris Mays Wright has been down there recently to talk to them about what they do. So I'm here with Simon of Rycote at the Rycote factory. Simon, what's February 09 bringing for Rycote? Well, uh, we've got a lot of uh, mini wind jammers for the personal audio recorders coming out. I'm using one right now. Yeah, very clear. Uh, that came out in January, and uh, they're going brilliantly. Um, and uh, in the spring, we've got quite a few things that uh, uh, people we think uh, will find very interesting. And then later in the autumn, we've got something very special coming, so uh, watch this space. This is the Boogie Child from 99.3 KCLA-FM, and you're listening to the Sound on Sound podcast. Okay, guys, well, I didn't get to go to NAMM this year, but you both have, so what did you see that you found exciting this time? Of course, there was the Roland V-Piano modelling technology, which was uh, on the new side, and that was rather rather good, quite impressive, I thought. And also, tucked away in a corner of the Garreton booth was something called Songsmith, which is a Microsoft product, and it's a relatively inexpensive download. Essentially, you can sing a melody or play a monophonic melody into a computer. All you need to do is play along to a click track, and the thing will analyse the melody and then come up with a backing in, a choice of styles, to um, accompany this. So if you've got a great song idea in your head but you can't play anything, this is a way of getting the backing down. And it's not as simplistic as it looks, because um, once it's created the chords, you can then go through and there's an alternatives list for each chord that it's got. And then you can dump the whole thing into your sequencer as a MIDI file and then start working on it more when you're finished. So it's kind of reverse karaoke, in a way. It is. Sounds amazing. E- and is this PC only, or will it work on... <laughs> is this PC only, or will it work on Macs as well? No, I'm afraid it's PC only, so it, it, it actually doesn't run on computers, only on Office typewriters. Of course, you can run it under Boot Camp on a Mac. Aha. Yes, I thought it showed a lot of promise. It's a shame that it doesn't run on the Mac, but then it is a Microsoft product. And who knows, it may even be worth buying a little PC just to run that. What did you see, Chris? Um, Well, something that excited me two years ago at the 2007 NAMM show was a product called KeyMap by Redmatica. It was originally designed for the EXS24 sampler in Logic. It lets you create seamless loops um, for the creation of sample patches and the like. until now, it's only been available for the EXS24, but for users of NI Contact, DigiDesign Structure, and the NNXT Sampler in Reason, uh, they can use KeyMap now as part of the Compendium 2 bundle. That's what it's called. This is a new version that we're showing, of course. Yeah. Um, so there are a few more features, but the fact that it's now uh, multi-platform makes it even better. From what I can see, they've also streamlined some of the functions, especially the graphics, so that it's more intuitive to use. And the way that it can loop sounds that include modulation and decays is just amazing because it effectively irons out the decays, does the looping, and then puts the decay back in again after it's done the looping. So it's very, very clever. And it can look for any kind of periodicity in a modulation cycle, such as a flange or a chorus. It's just uh, incredibly clever. Sounds good. Oh yeah, there's this new synth um, from F Expansion. It's called Decam Synth Squad, and basically it's two. Uh, sorry, it's three separate synth modules in one plugin, with a fourth module which kind of serves as a modulation matrix and various other things. The best thing about it is to create the various elements of the modules. They open up old bits of kit and find out what what they've done. So they've I've opened up things like the Oberheim OB1 and various Korg and Roland classics, and they derive their elements of their virtual synth modules um, from these real studio classics, which is quite a neat idea. 
And they even model the spiders that lived in the power supply, apparently. Yes, they do. Something I saw down on the Waves booth, um, which we've actually got a review of in the pipeline, uh, was their Maserati plugging collection. It's nothing to do with cars. It's to do with producer Tony Maserati. And what they've done, really, is ask this guy what processes he would use in a typical processing chain for different applications, such as voice, guitar, drums, whatever. And then they've distilled it down to just the controls that he would actually twiddle and hidden all the ones that he wouldn't, so that with probably only eight or nine knobs, you've got access to a vast range of adjustment, but you can't get in there and break it. So uh, give it a try, the Maserati plug-in collection. It's a halfway house, really, between presets and things with so many knobs on that you don't know where to start. I think it's a, a really good thing for the musician. On the flip side of that, something with lots and lots of knobs on it, and even more now in version 4, Ozone by Isotope, um, which is now on version 4, can now, on each of its seven kind of sub-processors, it can now process each of those independently in mid-side mode. So, for example, you can add some mastering reverb to the sides channel and lift the EQ at the top end just on the sides channel while leaving the mid kind of, you know, focused and, and in the centre, and then maybe add some normal left-right stereo multi-band compression, for example. So that's a nice that's a nice update. Something that should really please the old analogue synth brigade, who have been trying to get into the door world, but without leaving all the analogue stuff behind, is something called Volta from Motu, a mark of the unicorn. And what this does is it uses their own audio interfaces, which are all DC-coupled, as control voltage sources so that you have a controlling plug-in which sends out all the various control voltages to the synthesizers the audio comes back in and it even does a self-calibration by measuring the frequency of what comes back in and sets up all the laws of the different um, control voltages so that they, they track correctly and the more inputs and outputs you have on your interface the more things you can control so uh, you can really go mad this is going to make gordon reed very happy i'm sure <laughs> That sounds like a really great product, actually. I like that. It is. It's a great idea. So it's using the existing inputs and outputs of an audio interface? Yeah, it's using existing Motu interfaces. All you need is this new piece of software, and you can set everything up in there. And you can do weird and wacky things, should you wish to. Mm. Apparently, the guys from Roland were looking around eBay, and they found that the old AX1 controller keyboards were actually fetching rather a lot of money on the second-hand market. This is because it allows um, keyboard players to wear it around their neck. They can stand at the front and pose like guitar players, which uh, may or may not be a good thing. But anyway, they decided to follow this up by a modern incarnation, which is essentially the same concept, but with built-in sounds. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. He's a gentleman, he's a philosopher, he's a taxidermist. This is Sam Ingalls, he's Sound on Sound's in-house polymath and plug-in specialist. He brings his brilliant brain to bear on Sugarbyte's new software effects and instruments. Over to you, Sam. One of the things that's often said against computers as musical instruments is that they're not immediate. By the time you've booted up your PC, plugged in your dongles, loaded up that 6 terabyte cowbell library, kicked the cat off the keyboard and resolved your IRQ conflicts, inspiration has pretty much departed. Now there's not much you can do about some of this, except get a dog. But the problem goes deeper because some of the tools we actually use on computers to make music can be pretty counterintuitive and complex. That's why I was interested to try out the Sugarbytes range of plugins, because the makers have clearly thought quite hard about making them as immediate and hands-on as possible. In the review in the March issue, I look at all the plugins, but here I'm just going to talk about my favourite, which is called Artillery 2. Artillery 2 is basically a multi-effects unit, but the difference is that you trigger the effects from a MIDI keyboard. 
So for instance, notes in one octave might trigger a filter. The next octave might trigger a flanger. The next octave might trigger a bit crusher. And your top C might trigger a turntable effect. Of course, you can use more than one effect at once. And as well as the obvious, there are some more unusual effects. And some of these actually make use of the pitch information you feed it from the MIDI keyboard, like the tonal delay. There's also some fairly wacky granular effects. And Sugarbyte's trademark effect, which is something they call the vowel filter. And everything can be tempo synced too. I think Artillery 2 is a really neat tool for DJs and producers alike because it helps you get results fast and it frightens the cat. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. That's all we have time for this month. Don't forget that the March issue is in shops now featuring the first review of Cubase 5. There's also an interview with producer Youth who's worked with the likes of Crowded House, The Verb and Paul McCartney and a review of the Moo guitar written by our very own Paul White along with much, much more, of course. Join us next month. See you then.